0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. For generations, the Denver Star chronicled the lives of African-Americans living in the Mountain West region. But for years, there were gaps
1: in the effort to preserve that history. Until now. It's nothing if it's just in my house. It needs to go where people can use it. So I'm glad about that.
0: How one woman's surprise donation has closed that gap.
1: I want young people to find out information, because that's how we keep it going. I've done a lot to preserve black history all over the world, so I continue to do it, because that's important. Telling the story, once again, telling the story.
2: You know, right up top it says, Jim Crow must go. You can't have prejudice without, at the same time, having hate, fear, and selfishness. And it just goes on. You know, they, they definitely had a mission.
3: We are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support
0: from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The Denver Star newspaper chronicled the lives of African Americans living in the Mountain West region between the years 1913 to 1963 in a way that many historians say Denver's mainstream media simply could not or would not at the time. The publication is said to be incredibly useful for researchers in documenting Black life in Denver, their day-to-day activities, events that impacted their lives, and what they cared about most. For years, the Denver Public Library and other institutions had attempted to preserve the Denver Star, but there were always gaps in the record. Until now. It's all thanks to the generosity of one woman who was determined to make sure this chapter in history was preserved for generations to come. I recently visited with Brian Trimbath, a Special Collections Librarian at the Central Branch of the Denver Public Library, to talk more about this valuable donation. Brian, thanks for joining me.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: So, pretty exciting news, getting originals of an historic newspaper. That's not something that happens every day. Can you put into context, like, the significance of this contribution—
2: It's pretty significant anytime we get to to fill in a gap like this and present a more complete picture of the world that was presented in in any publication. And this one in particular, because it's less common than the Rocky Mountain News or the Denver Post, which are Mm. going to be all over the place, the Denver Star, it had a number of different title changes, a number of different owners, just kind of all over the place. And in terms of what's been digitized and what's out there, there's just some gaps that just nobody had. But this volume cover some of those gaps, particularly around the period of 1934. This publication is available digitally from a number of databases, and institutions have that digital version. Not very many have hard copies at all, but now we do, which is is a, a big deal, and I think people will find it pretty useful.
0: And this was a donation by Dr. Nancy Dawson, who is a retired college professor and former journalist.
2: Yeah, yeah. She called us out of the blue, unsolicited, and said, you know, I have this. Right away, you know, we knew it was something that we really wanted. I mean, she called us, and it wasn't even a week later we had the volume in hand. Our Western history collection is an amazing collection. It's one of the top collections of Western Americana in the country. But like everybody's, it's, it's stilted. It tells this one side really, really well. So now we have an opportunity to fill in some of those gaps that we haven't been telling very
3: well.
0: I wanted to see if we could give some insight into what this publication really tells us about life in Denver for the black community. And I know Dr. Dawson pointed out that this publication tells the story of a community whose story wasn't generally printed in the daily newspapers of the Times. And her quote is, newspapers do a lot of talking for the African-American community. Black newspapers were essential to the story of African American people. Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
2: You know, when you think about the, the daily papers of, of the 20th century, um, early 20th century, mid century, and on, they're pretty monolithic in a lot of ways. Even the ones that were doing a really good job at covering the world, they had a pretty biased perspective. And a lot of communities, like the African American community, just were not covered as well. So that goes for everything from you know, local store openings to church events. There's a lot of church news in the Denver Star from churches that were pretty important to that community and that you don't necessarily see in the religious section of the Rocky Mountain News and Denver Post of that era. They also cover a lot of national news that it was of significance to African-Americans and the things that were important to them and the things that they worried about. There's a lot more coverage of racial violence in this than you would see in the in the Post or the news, and a different perspective. I mean, when it's African Americans reporting on violence against African Americans, it's very different than how the Rocky Mountain News or the Denver Post would cover it or that they'd cover it at all. So it's pretty interesting. Plus, you also see a lot of the advertisements for the local businesses, many of which have pictures of the proprietors. That community, Five Points, was not—it had to have its own— Alternates, you know, community resources, newspaper, everything. And this filled that gap for sure.
0: And, of course, Five Points being an historically black Denver neighborhood yeah. that still exists today. Absolutely. We're going to dig into some issues of the Denver Star, but you've had a chance to look at it. Is there anything that surprised you, or anything particularly insightful that you noticed about it?
2: The coverage of racial violence and the real real terms that they use is is very different from what you see. You don't you don't see these stories covered on the front page of the, of the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post at the time. When you're just flipping through this, you will see former Denver Mayor Ben Stapleton referred to in some pretty glowing terms having the support of that community, despite his well-known you know, connections to the to the KKK in support of that, which when you kind of think it tr- through, it, it really just says more about what a shallow person former Mayor Stapleton was in terms of he would bed with the Klan if that was politically advantageous, but if, you know, he could put on another face for other people, which... The people of that era sometimes get a pass for being, well, he was just, you know, not really racist. He was just down with the Klan. But this shows how people were really casual about their connection with the terrorist group. And he very much supported the Klan when it was advantageous to him. But it's pretty shocking when you see that. You do not expect to see Contemporary people do not expect uh, Mayor Stapleton to come popping out of these pages so much.
0: And of course, just to even bring this issue up to date, the community Stapleton in Denver was named after this mayor, but post-2020, there was a movement to change the name of Stapleton to Central Park. Yeah. Tell us the backstory of how this donation came about. I understand this process is kind of a
2: roller coaster. It's been like six, seven years. Nancy was very patient with us. She was never like, when are you guys going to do this? Because our original agreement was that we would get it done in like, you know, 90 days or something really ambitious that <laughs> did not happen at all. But she stuck with us, and she really never complained. She was always very supportive. And, you know, we kept in touch over, over the years. And then when we finally got it, we had it digitized professionally, and we were able to get it to uh, Colorado Historic Newspapers which is a a website run by the state of Colorado that digitizes newspapers, Colorado newspapers that are out of copyright mostly. So then we were able to get it up on that right away, which was a big, it was really more access than we were even hoping for. And for this institution, you know, if we have all these materials, we want to make them accessible. People have to be able to look at them or like, why do we even have them? So that was a big deal for us to get that extra accessibility in there too. Now it's keyword searchable, And uh, you can go in to Colorado Historic Newspapers, and it's free, and you can look at the hard copy, too.
0: That was Brian Trimbath, the Special Collections Librarian for the Central Branch of the Denver Public Library. He was talking about the library's recent donation of original hard copies of the Denver Star newspaper. The historic publication chronicled the lives of African Americans living in the Mountain West region between the years 1913 to 1963. It is considered incredibly useful for researchers in documenting Black life in Colorado, especially in the Denver community of Five Points. When we come back, we'll peruse through some hard copies of the newspaper, which is available for viewing in the Special Collections area of the Denver Public Library. But first, we'll hear from the donor, a professor and journalist named Dr. Nancy Dawson, about why she held on to those copies of the newspaper for so long, and why she would not rest until they were in safe hands. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC.
3: The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio, called Terra Firma, brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman.
4: The sounds in nature are like the voices of friends. I know when I hear the first robin every spring, what that means. The sound of wind and trees, the bugle of elk. Those are the memories that become the soundtrack to our lives. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your
0: podcasts.
2: Supported by Credit Union of Colorado.
0: Let's get back to our conversation about the Denver Star newspaper. It's an historic publication that chronicled the lives of African-Americans living in the Mountain West region between the years 1913 to 1963. Before the break, Brian Trimbath, a special collections librarian at the Denver Public Library, told us about the surprise donation the library received of bound copies of the newspaper. He and I will peruse through some issues together shortly, but first, let's hear from the woman who made it all possible, a retired professor and journalist by the name of Nancy Dawson, based out of Kentucky. She donated the Denver Star newspapers to the public library and waited patiently through the COVID-19 pandemic while Trimbath and his team figured out the best way to make these issues accessible to the public. Brian told me that Dr. Dawson had held on to those copies for years and through several moves, and I should note the volume weighs about 25 pounds, but she never let them go. They were a coveted gift from her mentor, who was related to a previous owner of the newspaper. Welcome, Dr. Dawson. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about why you were so passionate about getting this donation to the right institution.
1: A lot of times, African-American artifacts don't go in the right heat because the people who have them, when people die, they just want to forget all about it. We don't know how to maintain and keep things. So I've had the Denver Star with me at least 25 years.
0: And this, of course, is and through di- different moves and
1: all yes, of that, right? Through being a professor at different schools and being a different. I lived in several places, but I kept it. Mm-hmm. And I knew one day I would get in the right hands. And... Um, The Denver Public Library was really interested. They wanted to make sure it was properly maintained and let the public get it. And that's what I want. Because it's nothing if it's just in my house. It needs to go where people can use it. So I'm glad of that. And
0: these issues were given to you by your mentor, Marie Ross. And she wasn't just the newspaper's editor. She was the first African-American graduate of the University of Kansas Journalism School and the niece of the Denver Star owner, Albert Henderson, Wade Ross. And uh, correct. And so at the end of her life, she gave you
1: this volume. And what were you thinking at the time that she gave this to you? I was going to do something with it. I knew then that it was important. And that I need to do something, even though I didn't do it for twenty years, twenty plus years, I did.
0: Having looked at this publication, what do you what do you personally think is the value that we get out of having access to these original copies of the Denver Star newspaper?
1: Well, I'm also a genealogist, so it'll help families uh, trace their history. Mm-hmm. It will help organizations get a better understanding of their history. And that's crucial, especially now when we are in these times when the narrative is attacked. And that I'm saying, you know, we're past certain civil rights things, but now it's about the narrative, telling the story. And the story needs to be told. So I'm really, you know, I'm gung-ho with that. I um I do a lot of things. My house is talk with stuff, telling the story. Because well, I think in the future, people won't know the things. They won't know what's in that Denver store. They won't even understand the struggle of, quote, Negro newspapers.
0: I've been doing some other research for different projects, and I have learned a lot about the role of the Black newspaper, the Black press, during these historic times, in capturing news events, but also day-to-day life for African-Americans. Is there anything that stood out in you looking at these issues in terms of things you learned about the Black community in Colorado and Denver at that time?
1: Well, I don't think one thing specific. I think that the fact that Blacks were in Colorado, they were in Alabama, they were in Kansas, and a lot of people don't know that. They don't know the contributions they made. And they did. And like the Midwest was had a lot of Black papers, more so than the Deep South. So the very nature that that paper exists, it tells us a lot about Black people in the area. What is your hope
0: now that the Denver Star originals have been donated and are now accessible at the Denver Public Library?
1: I hope that young people get access to the information. I know I had some years that they didn't have. They have some of the years, but not all of them. And I was able to fill in the gaps. Mm. So I want young people to access them. I want young people to find out information because that's how we keep it going. Young people have to do the research. I can only do certain things. And I have done, I think in my lifetime, I've done a lot to preserve Black history all over the world. I've been to Turkey. I've been to Jamaica. I've been all over Africa. I've been all over the U.S. And I'm still doing what I can. And I hope that God extends my life so I continue to do it. Because that's important. Telling the story, once again. Telling the story.
0: Dr. Dawson, thank you. Thank you. Inspiring message as we close out Black History Month today. Dr. Nancy Dawson is a retired college professor and journalist based in Russellville, Kentucky. She gifted original hard copy editions of the historic Denver Star newspaper to the Denver Public Library. Let's head back to my visit there now with Special Collections Librarian Brian Trimbath. I got the chance to peruse some of the issues with him. So the true value of this is that you actually get a hard copy, and I guess it has a little more nostalgia to see an actual hard copy of a newspaper, historic newspaper.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why you might want to look at a hard copy. We've had people come in to look at, you know, what's the paper quality, what was the use of color in certain items. You know, in library world, there's a concept of the content and the container. So the content's the words, and that's, you know, you can look at that anywhere there is something different about seeing a, a physical item. And that's really what we strive for. Um, can
0: you describe for us, for someone who obviously can't see what we're looking at right now, can you give us a sense of yeah. what the newspaper volume looks like?
2: So it's a bound volume that's about the size of an old tabloid-sized newspaper, which the Denver Star was was a tabloid size. It's the first few pages are pretty rough. These are the ones that have seen the most Use you, you know, they're a little bit torn at the bottom. As you go deeper in the volume, you see the condition is a lot better. It's so
0: really like yellowing mm-hmm. uh, paper, very yeah. kind of torn on the edges. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see, the first issue says the Denver Star, Denver, Colorado, October 20th, 1934. Mm-hmm. And as you alluded to, there's a lot of racial news. Negro workers make great advancement along unionizing industrial plants. Uh, we also see NAACP attacks exclusion of Negroes from jury system in the South on, what does this say, broad?
2: Broad lines. Broad lines. Okay.
0: Yeah. yeah as, as To your point, is the, these first issues yeah. are really in poor condition, so you can almost barely read some of the articles.
2: The, the new newsprint is made with wood pulp. You know, the, the paper's made from wood pulp, so it's very acidic. You know, it wasn't meant to be kept forever, so it starts to get a little yellow. Um, if it's you know, if it stays out of sunlight and air, you know, and in forever, um, it'll be in pretty good shape. And you can see a little further in the papers, the pages aren't quite as yellow or as torn. Um, at some point, somebody had tried to repair some of the pages with some uh, scotch tape, which um, <laughs> the, the heart's in the right place, but um, scotch tape is also pretty acidic.
0: Yes. Um,
2: and it's not, it's not a good long-term fix. It, it will cause more damage over time. But I flagged a couple pages here that just kind of show an example of, of what you might see in this really stark contrast of um, this large picture of an American flag and the Colorado mountains, and it says Denver, Colorado, and it says, it's a privilege to live in Colorado, especially in Denver, and enjoy her beautiful mountain scenery and wonderful sunshine. And then the article right next to it, this is from December 5th, uh, 1934, says, unmerciful beatings and horrible whippings of Negroes in Florida bring disgrace on state. I mean, this is... You know, that's, that's pretty stark contrast. Um, Absolutely. But these kinds of, I mean, this this was not the story on the front page of the Rocky Mountain News on December 15th, 1934. And you can see on the other page, it's the back page of the issue before you see some ads for, you know, Five Points retail liquor store.
0: Haircut you know, shop. <laughs> uh, yeah, the,
2: yeah, the, the, the Danite um, service station and garage on East 26th, an African-American-owned coal and uh, wood company, which... Um, Yeah, if you think about it, if you were an African-American in 1934, you might feel like you trusted an African-American-owned coal company more than maybe one that wasn't owned by uh, African-Americans. And yes, two different haircut shop places. And my guess is advertising in the Denver Star was also probably more affordable for the businesses of that community. But also, in terms of just marketing, if you're in Five Points... This is a great paper to reach people who live in Five Points if your business is there. So
0: This is interesting. Rids Confectionery Company, fountain service, candies, lunches, and dinners. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're advertising sandwiches, noodles, chili, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and also a cab company, Rid's Cab Company. Yeah.
2: Used to be a lot of uh, chili parlors in Denver, um, places that sold chili. And you'll find throughout here lots of church news, lots of church news. Yes. yes, here's the um, a large, pretty friendly picture of Mayor Ben Stapleton that says, Ben again, howdy folks, that he was the mayor again, right next to a celebration of, you know, Lincoln's birthday. Mm. Um, you know, like here's Ben Stapleton above a picture of, you Frederick know, Douglas. Fre- Frederick Douglass. And-
0: <laughs> Who's described as the giant of Negro manhood whose birthday memorial we cherish always, February Fourteenth, yeah. nineteen thirty-five.
2: So yeah, here's here's another one um, that I thought you might find interesting is, is Negro History Week, um, from nineteen thirty-five, um, and they're celebrating. I I'm sure that was not on the front page of the Denver Post that day, and some pictures of you know some African American veterans, and then Ben Stapleton again. Yeah, it says if Ben has been a friend, help Ben again. Once a friend, always a friend. Um, Let's
0: look at the food ad here. Canned fruits and blackberries for 15 cents, 24 cents a pound for some fish. And let's see, toilet paper rolls, twenty-seven cents. Yeah,
2: yeah. So you know, I don't know. You, I'm
0: sure we all would, we wish we could go back to those yeah. prices. Yeah, <laughs> let's yeah. see how much eggs cost.
2: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. We always look. You know, there's there's some great websites that give you the inflation adjusted. Um, but sometimes these these prices are still pretty cheap when you, even when you adjust them for inflation. But they're always interesting to see. You know, what what was the thing that that. Um, I don't think they had fresh chitterlings uh, advertised <laughs> in the Denver Post, uh, for sure. Um, these are the businesses that wanted to market to the people who were reading this newspaper. So um, you know, Oval it tells team. you something. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Large team, the the chocolate drink. Wow, it's been around yeah, a long and time. And
2: like I said, plenty of uh, religious coverage um, in there. Mm. Um, you know, oh, this is the one where the um, Dr. Locke, the head of the KKK. Dies suddenly while secretly setting a trap to seize more power from newly organized hate. So, this is after, this kind of after the early 20th century Klan had sort of had, were about 10 years past their peak of their power here when Locke died. And then again, you know, the American Woodman to hold an annual sermon at, uh, at Zion. Again, more church coverage. So, and then a story about sharecroppers in Arkansas
0: fighting yeah
2: yeah, so lots and lots of stories like this, uh, you know that that kind of news that that was not front page news for sure,
0: and under the banner, you see the Denver Star. We dedicate our journal to the uplift of the race morally, socially, and intellectually.
2: And you can see a, a subscription uh, a one year subscription was was two dollars. Um, and you can see right there in the in the banner, uh, you know, the masthead of the paper that you know where they say, how much it costs, who's the editor and all that, you know, right up top it says Jim Crow must go. You can't, you can't have prejudice without at the same time having hate, fear and selfishness. Um, and it just goes on. But yeah, this is their, you know, their masthead, so, you know, they, they definitely had a mission.
0: Brian Turnbath is a special collections librarian for the Denver Public Library. Earlier I spoke with Dr. Nancy Dawson, the retired college professor and journalist based in Russellville, Kentucky, who donated original copies of the Denver Star to the Denver Public Library. The Denver Star chronicled the lives of African Americans living in the Mountain West region from 1913 to 1963. The original copies are now available for viewing upon request in the Special Collections section of the Central Branch of the Library. Digital copies are also available online at coloradohistoricnewspapers.org. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Diane Pillez, and we donated our car to Colorado Public Radio. It was the car that both of my kids learned how to drive on. When it came time to get rid of the car because it made no more sense to repair it again, we took a vote and we decided to donate it to CPR. The process was really easy. We had to have our title, which we signed over, and the tow truck came and took it away. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. We've all been there. You're sitting in class, bored out of your mind as the teacher drones on and on and on. Today, we have a similar
5: debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Anyone? Anyone seen this before?
0: That's a scene from the 1986 classic film Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And it's a scene that still resonates today.
3: One day I was sitting in class and my teacher asked a question. My classmates and I all just sat there. We stared at the wall or at the ground and we wondered who's going to answer that question? Well, none of us did.
0: That's Ava Conley. She's a sophomore at Legacy High School in Broomfield. Last year, she spoke, with, she spoke at an event called TEDx Youth at Cherry Creek. Her topic? Nurturing Motivated Learners. She recently spoke with my colleague, Nathan Heppel.
6: So how did your teacher motivate your class to answer that question when you were in school?
3: Well, what ended up happening was my teacher grabbed out a bowl of candy and promised a piece to whoever first answered that question.
6: And what happened when the, the candy came out?
3: People's hands shot into the air almost instantaneously.
6: So they were like very silent, then all of a sudden, oh, I got the answer. Yes. Because the candy was presented. hmm And... Looking back, you discovered that this type of motivation is not only common, but that it can also be detrimental. Can you explain that?
3: Yeah. So while the candy comes with a quick response from students of people immediately raising their hand, it also has a quick response when it's taken away and that lack of participation returns almost immediately, because rather than being motivated just to answer the question, that candy was the motivator.
6: And it's just this perpetual cycle over and over again. Is that what you're finding?
3: Exactly, yeah.
6: So you ended up doing a lot of research to learn about different kinds of motivation. So that problem you saw in your class began kind of a journey for you where you were learning about the neuroscience behind motivation.
3: Yeah, exactly.
6: Is science one of your favorite
3: topics? I really enjoy science. I love knowing how things work. I always want to ask why, and I feel like neuroscience is that ultimate why. So I think that's why it really fascinates me.
6: I mean, it's pretty complex stuff that, that you're, you talk about in your TED talk, and, and we can't get into all of it, of course. We'd be here for hours. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to focus on what you say is the ideal form of motivation. It's this intrinsic approach motivation. Can you break that aspect down and kind of tell us what that is?
3: Yeah. So there are four main types of motivation. And each of these have a different neurological effect that they cause on us, and they can overlap and intertwine So, intrinsic approach motivation is when you're internally motivated to gain something. Okay. And it's been proven that it's the most effective, and it sustains the longest dopamine release. And And we've all
6: heard of dopamine, so I know what that'd be. Oh, it feels good. This feels good. I want more of that, right?
3: Right, exactly. And so, that dopamine release connects what's happening, that positive success, to the action steps that you took to get there. And so, you want to get to that dopamine again. And so you're more likely to take those steps again when you've formed a stronger pathway from the longer dopamine release.
6: Got it, so it's more so, Uh, extending that release because it's not just, you know, candy or Mm -hmm. or a sticker or some sort of reward.
3: If you think about it, so if you receive that piece of candy from your teacher when you're sitting in class, as soon as you finish that piece of candy, you're probably not going to be thinking about it for the rest of the day. Right. Whereas if you accomplish this long-term goal that you really wanted, that feeling of success is going to stick around a lot longer.
6: That makes sense. And your talk focuses on ways to achieve this in the actual classroom right what are some of those examples of how teachers and students can foster this type of motivation
3: yeah so a big part of fostering that type of motivation is allowing choice for students because when you have choice then it's more likely that the student will choose something that they're interested in and that interest is a big internal factor So choice can be hard to provide within a classroom just because you need to have one assignment across all of your students. But it can be simple, like in my talk I mentioned if you were to analyze a poem or a speech, having just a couple options can provide that choice on a reasonable scale, but it can still increase the interest levels of students.
6: Because they're choosing it for themselves.
3: Right, rather than it being assigned to the whole class that has a range of interests.
6: But here's my question, you know, grades and rewards have been used forever, right? I I mean, I know how excited my five-year-old daughter gets when she gets that gold star on her assignment. gets to do a special job when she finishes her schoolwork and does it correctly. I guess if this style of motivation is so entrenched in how we learn, won't it be hard to change?
3: Exactly. And that's another big part of fostering intrinsic approach motivation within our classrooms is going to be decreasing the emphasis on those extrinsic factors. So while at times important and at times extremely successful in motivating students, they're not very sustainable. So by increasing factors like emphasizing the skills and the tools that you can gain from school, students will be more likely to realize that they're gaining things even when they're not being offered. Offered a specific reward
6: well I appreciate you being here
3: thank you
0: Wow impressive that's Ava Conley a sophomore at Legacy High School in Broomfield she spoke with Nathan Heffel for our ongoing series of Gen Z conversations to watch her full TEDx youth talk and others just go to CPR.org this is Colorado matters from CPR news
7: the humble donkey is central to Colorado's early mining history the tough, sure-footed little animals carried millions of dollars in gold and silver out of mines on steep, narrow trails. Miners wrote stories and songs about trusted burros like Prunes, whose monument still stands on Fair Play's Front Street. He arrived in the 1860s and became one of the most reliable and recognizable burros in South Park. After decades of hard work, Prunes retired, free to roam about town. Residents gave him affection and his favorite food, flapjacks. In 1930, a blizzard trapped the aging donkey in a shed for days. Prunes was rescued, but never fully recovered. In front of weeping miners, Prunes was put down. He was 63. A year later, his heartbroken owner followed after a deathbed request to have his ashes buried next to Prunes, the beloved borough of Fairplay. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Cobol.
0: Photographer Juan Fuentes started out capturing how much the city he's known since he was little is changing. Then he decided to get more personal. He turned the camera on his own life and his family's migration story, as well as those of his friends. His work is part of a show at the Denver Art Museum that closes on Sunday. He spoke with Ryan Warner in September. Ryan asked him to read the name of his installation from the little plaque next to his artwork.
4: On the dirt, our knees tell truths. En la tierra, nuestras rodillas dicen verdades. What does that mean to you? It's an excerpt from a poem from Javier Zamora, who's an immigrant from El Salvador. But to me, it represents the honesty of those that work this land.
5: Work that is often done on one's knees, and one's knees become the symbol of how hard that work is.
4: Yeah, without a doubt, you know, the the immigrant experience, uh, you know, for the most part here in, in in the United States also comes with the very hard labor.
5: Fuentes' corner of the exhibition feels homey, like walking into someone's living room, peering at their family photos. There's even a little mantle covered in fabric. Juan Fuentes says he came to Colorado when he was one year old in 1991. So that's
4: not something you necessarily have a memory of. No, not much. What brought your family here? Work. Um, In the 80s, my dad was the one that was coming here temporarily to work and try to provide for our family down in Mexico. And then in the early 90s, he made the decision to bring us all and make it a more permanent place. Is that a decision you're glad of? Oh, yeah. I'm I'm so thankful and grateful to have had the experience of of getting to grow up in, in a place like Denver and then also at the same time, be able to have family in Mexico and and have that experience as well. We are hearing in the background the many
5: sounds, the chorus of all of the various installations in this show. This exhibition you're part of is called Who Tells a Tale, Adds a Tale, Latin America and Contemporary Art. The curator commissioned 19 artists, including you. We're surrounded, in addition to your photographs, by glowing neon and these sort of stuffed figures climbing up the wall. It's a really kinetic environment. I understand that when you were little, you used disposable cameras to capture parts of your life.
4: Yeah, yeah. It was mostly just on family vacations and things like that. I was, I don't know, for whatever reason, I ended up with the cameras in my hand and taking the pictures of of my family. So yeah, a lot of uh, my memories that are still around come from disposable cameras,
5: for, for those who are maybe a bit younger than us, disposable cameras were all the rage before smartphones started taking pictures.
4: Oh yeah, yeah, it was an easy way to like uh, photograph and go develop them at Walgreens or something.
5: Do you remember the excitement of getting your photos developed and showing up hoping
4: they were ready? (laughs) Yeah, and then, but also the disappointment when you would get them back and then you realize you put your finger in front of the lens the whole time and, you know, kind of ruined a few memories.
5: (laughs) So how did those early photographs inform this magnificent wall that we are standing in front of? There are photos lined up unframed, some are framed and they're all slightly different. So it has this very musical quality.
4: Yeah, and I was definitely trying to tap into that feeling I used to get from getting a disposable camera back. So the few of the the images that you see unframed are actually from a disposable camera. So yeah, that was to kind of go back to that place.
5: I see one of a church and it's right next to another of hanging laundry. Where are these spots?
4: These are in my hometown of Cuauhtémoc, Chihuahua, and these were all taken by my brother who lives there. Um, And this was like a collaboration between him and I, and I would be sending him the cameras. And so I just told him to document as if we were back in, you know, on our summer trips and taking the photographs of the things that, you know, we grew up with. So those specifically is the, the big cathedral at the center of the city there. And then the clothes hanging are from my uncle, who, if you walk into my grandma's backyard, there's almost always his clothes hanging in the back.
5: <laughs> Why is your brother in Mexico?
4: Um, yeah, a few years back, he was actually uh, deported. So, um, you know, him and I both grew up here um, throughout our whole lives. And then since 2018, he's been back in, in our hometown. The uncertainty of not knowing when, when I get to see him again is tough for sure. How was it
5: to see the images he'd taken?
4: Oh, it was beautiful, it was emotional. Also like super surprised, like he's like instinctually like a photographer, I think as well. (laughs) Yeah, they're just beautiful images and they just carried so much weight and um, nostalgia and he really captured our hometown.
5: Having his brother take pictures with a disposable camera is one way artist Juan Fuentes can capture the hometown in Mexico he can't visit right now. Another way is at the center of his collection at the Denver Art Museum. Three images in gold frames. They are screen grabs from Google Street View in Kutemuk. The largest one has a man standing in the street.
4: Part of the, I guess, experimenting was the idea of like bringing this preciousness to images that you normally don't see framed. And also not putting too much importance into whose images are whose, but more so on what stories they're telling. But that was also the idea of like, uh, how, you know, utilize technology to document my hometown without having access to it. And this specifically was actually going through by my grandma's house and turning a corner and seeing my uncle there. So that's actually my uncle. So yeah, kind of reclaiming and appropriating those images into what feels like a family archive.
5: I asked Juan Fuentes to point us to a photograph he made on this wall that is particularly meaningful.
4: Yeah, so at the beginning of this wall are six images that are mine. Black and white. Black and white is usually the approach that I take into photography. Um, But actually, the the first image that it starts with is a very meaningful one. It's... uh, outside of this bus station here in Denver, called Los Paisanos, and this is a photograph that I took back in 2017, while people were boarding the last bus of the day, which is the late bus, and uh, it's meaningful to me because it's part of like my memory going back to Mexico as a kid, was always hopping into the late bus at Los Paisanos, and, getting to see um, so many families going back home to reconnect with their families. And yeah, it's just a very special uh, image that brings back a lot of memories, you know, the the smell of the bus, getting excited because I, would you know, had created like a, a CD mix for the ride back to my hometown because usually it was about, you know, 20 hour bus ride. So always getting excited to just to be in the bus, get to see the scenery, listen to some new music, and then also just the excitement of like, I knew the following day I'd be back home.
5: Los Paisanos, the countryman yeah. in Spanish. And this is a bus that goes between here and several destinations in Mexico. I lived a couple of blocks from there. Yeah. And uh, what I remember, and I, I wonder if this stands out in your memory, are the vendors who show up, especially when the buses arrive, yeah. selling all sorts of Mexican treats.
4: Yeah, yeah, there's always vendors. That was also part of the, the excitement, getting to get some... Chucherias, as we call them, before we hop on.
5: What do you remember listening to on that playlist? Is there a song you still hear?
4: Oh, man, I mean, I guess the last bus ride I took, I I remember, like, last minute going to the CD store called Sam Goodies, that's not around anymore. Um, Yeah, and I bought, at that time, in the early 2000s, Houston Rep was really popular, and uh, I bought um, Lil Flip and uh, Slim Thug. (laughs) Those I like listened throughout that whole summer and those are like the last, I think, songs I hear when I think about my last trip to Mexico.
5: What story
4: do you hope to
5: tell or experience do you hope to get across with this show?
4: One that I hope that, you know, immigrants experiencing, you know, things similar to me can like uh, see themselves and, and find the little details that you know point at the fact that i am an immigrant um and that these are a lot of things that we've all you know used to reconnect to our, our our place of birth and a lot of us coming from mexico um i hope you know see themselves uh you know outside of the photographs i also created a a cross made out of these um uh, Telcel or Telmex cards, which were, like, long-distance phone cards um, that I used to collect in Mexico because they would have, like, different things on it. To me, I was just wanted to add small details to that idea of, like, these are the items and the artifacts that we used to, you know, we grew up on that were the only technology to, for keeping that connection when you have an experience of having to leave a country and, you know, having family back there and having this distance in between that Um yeah, so to me, uh, the story I wanted to tell is my own personal one, but with the hopes that a lot of people can connect to it and, and they'll also see themselves within it.
5: Juan, I don't know if you have seen these TikTok videos of young black girls watching as they see that the Little Mermaid is black and the delight in their eyes. And I couldn't help but think of that as you were describing your reason for this show, that there are going to be people who come into this museum and see themselves represented in your images and feel recognized and recognize symbols. And I wonder to some extent if your goal is comfort, is to say, I
4: see you. Yeah, without a doubt, it's comfort, and it, and it's why the approach of the, the wall here in this installation is kind of to resemble the, the wall you would see at like my grandma's house. Um, yeah, it has a living room feel. Yeah, yeah, and to me, that's comfort. That's that's a safe space, and um, and yeah, without a doubt, um, representation and being able to see ourselves, you know, in these big institutions is very important, and it's very intentional within my decision to to tell this story.
5: Were you into art in general beyond disposable cameras when you were a kid?
4: Oh yeah, I was always drawing, um, painting, did graffiti, skateboarded, made music (laughs) ever since I was a kid.
5: Wait, I love that you throw in skateboarding. Is skateboarding art?
4: Oh, without a doubt. And it's what taught me so much, learning how to fail. It's, It's very important in your practice in art, and skateboarding taught me a lot of that.
5: Did you ever decorate your own board?
4: No, not outside of just like stickers and whatever. Just (laughs) customized it. But no, no, never took it to that extent.
5: You started an Instagram account called Old Denver. It's a really good follow. What's the idea behind it?
4: Um, Originally was just to share photographs that, you know, resemble the, the things that I grew up with in Denver that felt like were fading away due to the gentrification. And it kind of grew into this community space where people were sharing their photos as well. Um, And to me, it feels like uh, this digital archive that's kind of living and breathing, but also this like feels like a puzzle that had been scattered that's getting put back together.
5: Give me an example of a photograph maybe that was contributed recently or that you took recently that captures a place you're nostalgic
4: for. You know, recently we just learned that there's Rocky's Auto was gonna be closing down, and I shared a com- an old commercial from it, and that, man, a lot of people just like connected with it and remembered all those wacky commercials. Please step out of the car.
2: Is this any way to represent Rockies? You guys are smoking pot.
4: It's legal now. It's still a federal offense, mister. Nice badge, officer. Can I touch it?
2: (laughs) See? That explains why no work gets done. This is
4: ridiculous. I should arrest you. Just things like that is what I'm always trying to share. It's not just about the photographs, but these things that we kind of all collectively grew up on.
5: I wonder if you've been surprised by anything shared in old Denver. Has it taught you something?
4: Oh, yeah, yeah, it's taught me a lot, I mean, because there's people sharing from before I was born, especially a lot of it revolving around the Chicano movement, and and so reconnecting with its history and, like, having people share a lot of more stories and information, a lot of these names that, you know, to anybody living in North Denver might be household names. To me, it wasn't necessarily because as an immigrant sometimes we're a little bit sheltered or, like, you know, in our own bubble. Um, and... Weren't really familiar with what had happened there before. Um, the, I guess through Old Denver, I got to reconnect with a lot of the community members that you know lived and experienced that, but also you know shared the knowledge that oftentimes doesn't get preserved through uh, academia or through textbooks.
5: While the Instagram project Old Denver looks outward, this exhibition at the Denver Art Museum is indeed more personal. Not just showing Juan Fuentes's life, but also his friends and their immigrant stories. That includes Jeanette Vizguera, who's well known in Colorado and beyond. Fuentes's images show her yard and her at home
4: with her family. So this is off my photographs. Um, Jeanette Vizguera's like family uh, at her home, and you know she's had been living in sanctuary in a church for a few years, like over five years, and. It's the first time she's kind of been able to be out of there and experience, like, living a more normal life at home, and that's what I wanted to highlight. You know, she's been on Time magazine as one of the most influential people. You know, she's a very heroic figure, or she's always kind of depicted as that heroic figure or, like, a victim. But to me, I wanted to highlight just her existing as a mom and, you know, her everyday experience that is also a big part of that. What would you say
5: to, I don't know, someone around the age you were when you were skateboarding and taking photos with a disposable camera. Someone who has a flame of artistic talent and is
4: wondering how to direct it. Just to experiment and trust yourself. And also don't be afraid to tell your story. I think it's important for artists to understand that art can be a place where we can give ourselves a voice and an opportunity to be authors of our own stories.
5: The experimentation aspect is interesting to me.
4: Um... Every, anytime I was entering a new medium or, or trying new things, I never learned it in a traditional way. So to me, it was always experimentation. But I think specifically with this installation, I think I'm breaking away from the traditional way the photography installation is used um, and also appropriating different kinds of images into it as well. I think is an experimental kind of phase for me, um, which... I wasn't necessarily sure of, but it felt right. And I think it was more of the details needed to tell this story without, you know, having access to a place or, you know, sometimes the the camera can only do so much.
5: There's one aspect of your work I'd like to talk about, which is your generosity. I mean, you get an exhibition at the Denver Art Museum and you make a place not only for your photographs, but your brothers. And then you make a place not only for your stories, but your friends' stories and the stories of people you admire—what does that tell us about you, Juan? <laughs>
4: um, I don't know. It's just that was my first instinct. Is there was a challenge to tell a story, and it couldn't be done with just my lens and my perspective, and. To me, it wasn't necessarily about generosity, I think it just comes through, but it was more so about like what made sense. It's like, I get a space in such a big institution, and I, you know the reason that I'm in places like this and thinking about certain ideas is because of mentors like Janevis Guerra, is because of friendships. And to me, it just was first instinct to bring them along. I never saw it as this opportunity to just be, oh yeah, I get to just showcase my photographs and and elevate my career or something like that. It never felt that way. It felt like an opportunity to create space for someone like myself that is one in thousands and millions in this country.
5: Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thank you.
0: Denver artist Juan Fuentes speaking with my colleague Ryan Warner in September. His work is part of the exhibition Who Tells a Tale? Adds a Tale, Latin America and Contemporary Art. It's at the Denver Art Museum through this Sunday, March 5th. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team.
5: Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete
4: Kramer.
0: Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher,
4: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño,
0: Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.